Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I serve as your host each week for what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast where twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays, we release episodes of some of the biggest business titans in the world, best-selling authors, Pulitzer Prize winning literary geniuses, people that have created products or done research to make our lives as leaders more effective, more impactful. We also interview people that sometimes aren't household names. They may have survived some unspeakable tragedy and lived to share stories of triumph and success and resilience. We also like to interview entrepreneurs that have profound stories of impacting the community, of changing people's lives through their philanthropy, their dedication to community development. And today we have just such that guest. His name is Ryan Smith. You know him, of course, as the franchise owner and governor of the Utah Jazz. He is the co-founder and chairman of the Smith Entertainment Group and the founder and executive chairman of Qualtrics, one of the major success stories in the customer experience technology space in the last several years. He's joining us today from, I'm guessing, the Utah Jazz location, the Delta Center, from the looks of his background, here in Utah. Hometown hero and entrepreneur, Ryan Smith, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, thanks for having me. Ryan, i got to share with you, uh, you're the kind of franchise owner that every season ticket holder, every citizen of a state who buys a ticket for $50 or for $1,500 that sits up at the very top or at the bottom... You're the kind of owner we hope you would be because I want to share an off-camera moment. As the listeners and viewers of this podcast know, my wife Stephanie and I live downtown Salt Lake City. My three sons and my wife are rabid Utah Jazz fans. Regardless of who comes and goes, they're dedicated to the, the sport of basketball. And I brought with me today my youngest of three sons, Wentworth. He is Eight, and he brought with him his trove of Utah jerseys, jazz jerseys. You graciously took not just a picture with him off camera, but offered to invite him to uh, a jazz game coming up a couple hours beforehand to meet the players and shoot off stage. It's what every, it's what every professional sports fan hopes the governors or the owners are like. Obviously, your financial wealth has been a provider of philanthropy, but beyond that, what drives you to make sure that these small moments where no one sees touch lives? Well, I, I was him. Like, I mean, and, and I don't know how else to say that, but especially here in Utah, um, I was an eight-year-old kid who loved the jazz and wanted to have a moment. And, you know, I remember um, my father taught at Brigham Young University and, and I remember the, the owner, the prior owner of the Jazz, Larry Miller, would teach up there. And um, I ran into him a couple times. Or I, I never had a chance to speak with him, but I, I'd see him up there. And if I were to talk to him, I almost say, like, what would I, what would I want to see or hear or do as yeah. a kid? And it's pretty easy to back yourself into, you just want to have a moment. You have, want to have something special. And so now being in this spot, um, it's pretty clear what what your role should be as a as a community leader is you know this is truly a community asset it's something that everyone can be a part of um, it's not something where access needs to be um, you know limited to a small group of people there's way more access in these organizations than I think most people believe that there is um, it's technically not always about the players it's a, 
there's, there's all these little things. And I think what we're trying to do as an organization is try to find all these experiences that the community could take part in and actually create a bunch of new ones that maybe no one's thought of before. So well, I think this is part of my job is to try to figure out how to how to make every moment um, something that someone will remember, hopefully in a positive way. Ryan, I think beyond it being your job, I think it's become your mission and will be your legacy. Uh, congrats to you and your family on being an enormous steward, enormously impactful steward of the resources you've been privileged to earn. To that point, let's rewind a couple of decades. You are the founder and executive chairman of Qualtrics, a name that every Fortune 5000 company, every Inc. 5000 company knows. Will you uh, rewind as long as it takes and share the story of Qualtrics, how it started as a great story and the interesting pivot that came prior to going public and such so people understand how you came into the resources to steward this really state-changing impact of your role as the chairman of the now Smith Entertainment Group, where you and your family own a, a multitude of assets, including the recently renamed Delta Center, downtown Salt Lake City, Real Salt Lake, the, the soccer team, others, uh, G League teams. Talk about the origin story behind this amazing journey. Yeah, I was a young kid in college in, um, you know, it, it really Qualtrics happened by accident. And, um, you know, if I look back over 22 years in tech, first of all, like, I'm super blessed to even be able to have a career that long coming out of college. Um, in tech, you're always one good idea uh, away or someone's a good idea away from kind of wiping you off the face of the earth because disruption happens all the time. And so to be able to have a 22 year career with the, the same thesis or company, even though there's a bunch of different startups within Qualtrics that have kind of taken off over time, um, it's, it's not lost on me how lucky we've been to, to be able to kind of color in the same lines and, and set out a vision for, for that long. And so the origin of it's, it, it's, it's a crazy one. My father was an academic, a professor, um, you know, really scientific researcher who, who would, you know, publish a lot and want to do a bunch of research and was always messing around with technology that, that would make the ability to, to gather research at the time a lot, a lot faster. And, you know, with the advent of the internet, um, you know, he had developed uh, a couple ideas and programs around the ability to go get human sentiment um, in, a, in a very quick way with the internet. Um, I got a phone call, you know, when I was, I was actually doing an internship in Los Angeles for Hewlett Packard. And, you know, he basically said he had cancer and, he had just a short time to live. It wasn't good. It's the phone call that no one ever wants to get or hear. Um, and so I basically came home, left my internship, didn't register for school that fall, and just said, I'm going to spend this time with my dad. And it became clear that we needed something to focus on. There was, there was way too much downtime between treatments and, and radiation and everything. And he was messing around with this technology. And so we would actually go into our house into a separate garage, kind of attic space. Um, and then, you know, we'd work on this. And at the time he couldn't speak, but instead of fixing up a car together, we decided we would, we would kind of build out this, this company. And that, that company became Qualtrics. And it's, it's pretty crazy to think back to that time and say, Hey, 
It was just a, a little bit of an idea in 2002. It was in the shadow of the dot-com bust where startups were not a popular thing. Um, and and we, we really started out building out this program where organizations could gather feedback um, and data outside um, of what just executives thought. And it quickly transformed into, you know, the leading market research product on the planet, um, as well as the number one customer experience product, and, and now coming in to be, you know, the number one employee experience product all on one single platform. There's a lot of history, a lot of long journey throughout that um, that I'm sure we'll get into, but the, the entire thesis was you know, kind of this this problem my father had to help his students and to help his personal research to something that we democratized and took mainstream. So basically every single person who worked in business could be their own researcher or their own data scientist, which wasn't very popular. Ryan, this story is so compelling on many levels. It really gives, uh breathes life into every entrepreneur, solopreneur, intrapreneur, person with a side hustle, person who has a passion that believes they can scale something that not just changes lives, but provides potentially you know, economic opportunity, not just for them, but for their family, for their employees. I hope that every budding entrepreneur that's had a few setbacks, that's had a few late nights with their, 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 their father or their sibling or their child or their spouse in the garage that keeps going, because what you and your family have created is um, beyond economically viable. It's, it's a motivating force to, I think, hundreds of millions of entrepreneurs that secretly have a dream. They found a problem, they've got a solution, and they're trying to figure out how to make it go forward. Qualtrics grew unbelievably fast. In fact, right prior to your going public on the stock exchange, something unique happened. Will you walk everyone through that trajectory of what happened before the IPO and what's happened since then? Yeah, Qualtrics was set up for about three different, different business models. And so I think this is something that, that everyone operating or an entrepreneur can, can kind of relate to. The first 10 years, we bootstrapped. We didn't raise any outside funding um, from 2002 to basically 2012. Um, if we didn't earn it, we couldn't spend it. Um, and that, that's hard. That's a very hard model. But if you think about that time period, 2006, 7, 8, were incredibly difficult. Um, we actually bet on academics, which is a really bad business model because they have no money. They can sit in your product all day long and they're very demanding. Um, but something really happened is we, we started targeting academics. They started sharing it with their students and their student graduated out into the workforce and took Qualtrics with us. 2011-12, we shifted the business model to be a venture-backed company. We raised the largest Series A funding round in 2012 um, since 2008. We raised a $70 million Series A in Silicon Valley, um, Sequoia and Excel. It was the largest deal they had done together. These are the firms that have backed you know, Google and Apple and um, so many others and Facebook, they were first money in all of those. And they bet on a company in Utah, which really hadn't happened, um, especially for those firms. They were pretty much locked into the Bay Area and, and took a bet on us. 
And from 2012, we, we started going on a different path. Instead of, you know, slow growing, we, we decided to put everything back in the business and try to grow as fast as we could. And over the next um, six years, we opened up internationally, we scaled our platform, we offered more products, um, and we basically went from, you know, what, what I would say at the time, 200 employees to multiple thousands of employees and 26 offices around the world. Um, as part of venture capital, you're, you're, you're on a path. Um, someone once told me that that's the beginning of an exit because you're actually, um, you, you've got more responsibilities. You, you, you have partners in the tent now and you know they have investors and they need to get their money out. Um, you're basically signing up for a different track and that track was ultimately um, likely an IPO. And so in the, in the beginning of 2018, we decided we were gonna go public. We stood up um, in, in January with the whole company and said, hey, we've waited, you know, what's been 16 years for this moment. It, it hasn't been fast and we're gonna get ready to go public. And, um, you know, the, the windows to go public are kind of either spring or, you know, the fall. There was one window in November um, that we, we thought we could hit and have the company ready to be a public company. It was, it, for us, it was not about just going and listing on the market. It was about what happens when we're there and how can we operate over time, um, you know, at least with a three-year window and is the company ready for that. Uh, we were on the road show. Um, I had developed a bunch of relationships with um, the market and specifically Fortune 500 CEOs and the hyperscalers in the tech world. And one of them reached out while we were on the road show and said, hey, you know, are you sure you want to go public? And my response was, well, you know, that's never been a destination for us. What's more important is we have this new software called experience management in this platform that we want to take to everyone in the world. And the, the public market gives us the biggest platform to be able to do that. Um, this individual was, was named, his name's Bill McDermott, and he was the CEO of SAP, which was the largest software company in Europe. And he said, well, how about a, how about a different plan? What if you went public through us where we acquired you and uh, we put you at the tip of our spear and all of our marketing, and we took you to the world. And, you know, three days before the IPO, we did the largest private software transaction at the time in, in history. And um, SAP bought Qualtrics, and we ended up um, not going public, which was kind of a fun moment with, with the whole company to tell everyone, hey, J slash K, we're not going public. We're gonna actually go a different direction. Um, and, and that's how we ended up um, with with SAP. Um, we we were we were within SAP for um, 18 months after that. This is uh, during the pandemic, and then we decided to actually spin it out and go public for the first time. And so there's not much much history or case studies where uh, people have been able to do that. And we we've been public for. Uh, right around a year and a half. And then we ultimately three weeks ago went private again. So I think in a four or five year period, um, we've had three or four transactions 
throughout basically the beginning of the pandemic on and um, uh, we're still operating the company, which is just incredible to, to have all these experiences happen. Ryan, there's so much to unpack in that journey. Uh, a couple of thoughts come to mind. You mentioned almost innocuously 16 years later. I think it's important to remind everyone there's no such thing as overnight success. You look at all of these entrepreneurs, people that have had major impact, whether it's a, 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 an author whose sixth book becomes their first bestseller, whether it's an actor or producer who, you know, seventh pilot becomes the one that puts them on stage. You toiled for 16 years building this company before you hit your financial inflection point. Is that accurate? Yeah, and I think I think that as I look back, I think the the time that I've enjoyed most running the business was that time between 2015 and 2018, when we were all locked in on this goal of going public, where the entire company had this mission of taking XM to the world, and it was where we were all, you know, all charging to climb that same mountain. Um, and the reason why that's important is because if I look back over 22 years, when, when we did sell the company and, and you mentioned it, it was like that financial moment, uh, that was about as underwhelming as anything I've really been a part of, because I think in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of most people, that's this eureka moment and actually wasn't, um, it was actually more sad with the thought that, hey, maybe there's a chance this could be over. With our board members saying, hey, I'm not on the board. We've grinded, we've backed you for 10 years. Like, I, I, don't, wanna, I don't wanna not work together again. And, and it became really clear that the journey is way more important than the destination. And I know that's cliche to say, but um, it's true. Like all we have is those relationships and the journey and the experience we've done and what we've been through together. Um, and, you know, this concept, especially we see it a lot in tech that, you know, these things just pop, at least the world I'm in with enterprise software. I mean, nothing happens for 10 years. Like there've been very few companies that have been able to make it really faster than that. If you're going to build something great. And, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a moat around being able to scale technology. And I think from the outside, it might look like, hey, this is just just sign up for the biggest wave and, and there's a lottery ticket there and you know this is how it's gonna work. And it, it's actually the, the opposite. I think if it looks like a lottery ticket, it's the first rule of it not being a lottery ticket. Um, because if you look at the great companies, um, they haven't looked how they've ended up. And that's also a beauty of being in technology is like where it starts is not where it ends up because no one would have seen the early days of Qualtrics and said, hey, this looks like it could be a lottery ticket or it could be something that could end up where it was. Like, I think I know, read once from a Harvard- Really hard getting people to come in there, yeah. I think I read once, Ryan, a Harvard business study where something like 93% of quote successful companies end up with an emergent strategy that got them there. It wasn't their deliberate strategy. It was something entirely different 93% of the time. I want to save some time in this conversation to talk about what's next for you and the Smith Entertainment Group. Before we go there, 
you've got a lot of pressure on you, right? You're, 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 a, you're a dad, you're a sibling, you are a spouse, you are the executive chairman of Qualtrics, you are the um, franchise owner and governor of the Utah Jazz and the Real Salt Lake and other G League and up-and-coming teams. You um, own the Delta Center, recently renamed. And if, for those of you who don't live in Utah, there was a massive story around how the Smith family brought Delta Airlines back as the sponsor of the Delta Center. And you have a lot of pressure on you. Before we talk about what's next, is there any advice you would give to everyone who's listening who in their own world is managing multiple things, their relationships, their family, their businesses, their day job, their night job, their weekend job, trying to keep their life balanced? Any things you've learned along the way that have made you a better leader that might be replicable for people who don't have the access to resources you have or even the notoriety? Yeah, I think, I think you can't, if I were to use a sports analogy, you can't like run in front of your blockers, right? So there's a time that you have to grow. It's, it's very much like, you know, we have, we have five children and if they would have given us all five children at once, like we probably would not have been able to handle it. They kind of come one at a time some, some get a jump and it comes multiple, but you, you, you kind of have a step function of what you're able to take on and then you go in and you, you rejigger a little bit of, of who, who you are and how you operate. Um, I was recently having a conversation um, this weekend with my wife, Ashley, who, who's an entrepreneur and runs a dance studio, and she was talking about how she needed to reinvent herself and her schedule and how she was going to work to align with where she was going into this year, because it's totally different than last year and it's different than the, the year before. Not only the work she's doing might be a little different or grown or evolved, but just how she feels personally, you know? And so um, I'm a big fan of always looking to find a life hack or reinvent myself um, to be able to handle um, the enormity of whatever it is that you're dealing with. And I think this is something that everyone can do. I'm also, you'll hear, you'll hear me talk about um, doubles and triples and, and where we're, we're, we're always trying to double up on, on different things. And, and this, is, this is what we do. I always use the example of you know, my roles in life. I am a father, I'm a husband, I'm a friend, um, I'm a CEO. Um, I'm a chairman, like there, there's all sorts of responsibilities. And at the beginning of the week or however you define it, you've got to ask yourself, what does success look like? What, what's the high and the minimum you can put in each one of those areas at the end of the week? So could you, could you back yourself in and say, hey, I was super successful as a husband um, or uh, a, a father to each one of my children this week and what would it look like? Because I think a lot of times we're way too hard on ourselves and we put undue pressure on ourselves, but we also can't define what we would have to do to be able to actually feel good. And if I can't define what success looks like, I gotta let it go. You gotta do something about it, um, forget about it or kind of move on. And, and I want to look at it and say, hey, for my 15 year old who needs to learn how to drive, Success this week would be take her to school one day and teach her how to drive one night 
and have a real conversation with her. And if I could do that by the end of the week, I'd feel really good. Um, it's the same with every role that we have, but it just requires more planning. And I'll never forget as a kid, you know, I was kind of a, uh, in a unique spot as a kid. You know, my parents had split up and in my neighborhood, Stephen Covey lived there. And um, on Sundays, just in our setup, in our faith, like you would go in, um, you were assigned a family or two or kids to kind of go and mentor. And I'll never forget, Stephen Covey would come with one of his sons and come and visit my house. And I, I didn't know really who he was at the time because I was a young kid and didn't care about a whole lot. But he would sit down and he would explain um, and teach our family and specifically me. And um, that was always a moment where, as I look back, here was a gentleman who was running a large organization, was flying around the world to teach all of these amazing people, um, from Oprah to everyone. But on Sundays, he could find the balance to come, and he never missed coming to my house with my family to just provide um, a little bit of help to a kid and a family who was probably struggling a little bit. And so I think that there's a lot of lessons around where people are figuring it out. They're able to handle a lot and it's how they're getting organized. Um, even when they don't have a ton of resources by just reinventing the, their own selves or the way they do things. And if you're still operating the same way you were five years ago, with today's situation from schedule, how you wake up in the mornings, what you do. Um, it's just an invitation to go think different and reinvent yourself and maybe you'll get a different different output or be able to stair step a ladder up where what used to really hurt you or debilitate you actually is not something you worry about anymore because you, you got that. Ryan, I don't know a lot of professional sports franchise owners, but you strike me as setting a new model. You strike me as someone who is fiercely mission-driven, uh, enormously invested in the philanthropy of your organizations. Obviously, your dad's passing or your, your dad's um, struggle with cancer has had a, a, a grounding in your passion five for the fight to combat cancer. In many ways, it's a big mantle. Maybe it's a mantle you don't want, but... Do you recognize that you're setting a new standard for franchise owners, franchisees, members of the team, the, the, the board of the governors of the NBA obviously has comprised of different people from different backgrounds, different stewardships. To what extent do you see yourself as a role model for the future of professional sports team owners and for philanthropists? So philanthropy and impacts, um, it's interesting because when we sold the company in 2018, one of my biggest fears was that, you know, I personally wouldn't be part of an organization or a business that could reach and make the impact that we had been making. Um, I personally believe that organizations and businesses are the ultimate platform to do good. If you think about the reach, the facilities, what you're able to do, a group of people with inside an organization coming together to, to affect change 
um, how many families you already have that are just part of your reach. I mean, we have 6,000, 5,000 people at Qualtrics that when we get a line to go do something, um, it's pretty amazing, let alone the resources the organization has and the talent that people have to be able to go do that. So I was fearful that that, that was not going to be there. Um, one of the things I love about sports is there's not an organization or a platform in the world that I have seen to be able to do good um, like these sports franchises. And we, we saw that before we were part of the jazz when we took this foundation, Fight for the Fight, which was everyone giving $5 for the fight against cancer. Um, and we put that jersey patch on the Utah Jazz. It was the first nonprofit to ever do something in the three professional sports here in the U.S. like that. And, and Qualtrics had paid for that. And it was an incredibly successful campaign because the fight against cancer is, is, is everyone's fight. We, we're all impacted, not just a couple high net worth individuals to go donate. Um, it also allowed you to do something where you could donate on behalf of someone when you got the phone call that I had, which you, you feel helpless. And so we had seen the power of sports. And I think in sitting down um, with Ashley, um, when we decided to come into this, like one of our big things was well, like, to what end? Why are, why are we doing this? We just got out of a, you know, a, a 16, 18 year run in tech where it was just crazy um, on the road, just at a level and a pace that um, was almost unsustainable. And then we're just going to roll right into sports, which never sleeps. And so how, like, wh what for? Why? We're good. And, and reality is it, it came down to the impact you can make on a community. And um, I personally believe that the NBA in particular um, is such an incredible platform. I've never seen anything like it um, where it's just magnitudes even above a normal business of, of the good you can do and, and how you can leverage the MBA, whether it's through the scholarship programs, which we have done, and, and really bring the community together. Ryan, in many ways, you become a hometown hero in Utah. Every week, you and your family are in the news for some innovative partnership or some progressive ideology and how you want to open access to allow people to watch the jazz games on, on, on easier to acquire platforms. Your momentum seems unstoppable. To the extent you're comfortable, will you share what's next for you and your family? What's on the horizon? There's lots of um, innuendo around what, what's going on in your world. What can you share? Well, I mean, we're on the, we're off the, uh, just right off the hills and we're getting ready to start, um, SEG Media, which is Smith Entertainment Group. It's our media company. Um, and if I go back to the days of what, you know, kind of our background, it, it's really, um, understanding the data around consumers and historically the model in media, um, has been one specifically for local television where we would, you know, we would kind of offer a third party all of our rights and then they would deliver an experience for our fan base. And uh, the world's changed. I mean, that was a 10 year old model. And, you know, we just launched the ability for every single Utah to be able to watch 
jazz games for free over the air. So if you basically have a TV with bunny ears or some sort of antenna, you can you can get the jazz games. And overnight, that went from about 1.2 million people watching games to 3.2. And then um, we're also signing um, deals here with direct-to-consumer that was just announced. So if people want to consume um, through their phones or through utahjazz.com, they can. And then we're also going into adjacent states, which are Idaho, Wyoming, part of Washington. And we're expanding that footprint to, to be able to ultimately jump the size of the market um, where Utah is the fastest growing state, the youngest demographic. We're, we're now going to, you know, from what would have been 1.2 to possibly four to five million people watching the product that, that, that we're putting on the floor. So this is pretty exciting. Um, it's a new model. Um, I don't think anyone in, in sports has really gone the way that we're going. Um, but it has much more to do that we, we don't have one consumer. We, and this is a pure Qualtrics moment because it's, it's exactly what we do at Qualtrics. Um, we have four or five different consumers that watch the games. We have, you know, your, your kids, um, Scott, who are looking at it on YouTube and looking at it through maybe shorts. Um, we have my parents who probably want to sit at home and watch the game. Um, end to end. Um, we have people that are on the road. Um, we have people who want to come, but um, only want to catch a couple games. And so what we want to do is basically target different segments of our fan base and offer a product for every single group. It's not a one size fits all. And we're in a very highly personalized world. And so being able to lead out and work with the NBA um, to do this is, is super fun. Um, I think the NBA is is transforming and disrupting itself, which is what I love. Um, specifically with that, um, you know, with you know, we're launching an in-season tournament. Um, we just did the play-in, so we're looking at different models to be able to evolve, and it's been pretty cool to be a part of that evolution. Uh, if we look at sports in general, um, you know, soccer—it's an exciting time for MLS with with Messi coming and everything that we're trying to do. I'm partnering with David Blitzer, um, who, who also in Sports Back East on doing um, that uh, around MLS expansion. And we're also looking at, at Utah. We've, we've, we've got a good chance for the Olympics to come back. Um, there's no secret that we've been interested in hockey and really expanding this footprint of sports um, for the state. And I think that's a that's an exciting thing. Um, there's nothing that that allows individuals to come and forget about life and have an experience in a moment than there is in live sports. And I think live events in general, um, we're watching with Taylor Swift and other things um, where uh, people, people really want to consume experiences. If you look at Delta Airlines, and we're very close with Delta, both on the Qualtrics side and, and them coming back into um, you know, the arena and in talking with Ed, I was just out as an investor's day. Um, they've never seen the type of um, demand for their product. And, and what we're seeing as consumers, it's, it's almost not about just goods of consumption now. It's people want to prioritize having moments, having experiences and, and actually doing stuff. And I think that that um, 
is something that, that we're pretty bullish on as well because it's, it's truly a feel-good endeavor. And I think the one thing I love about you know, our shift in sports, as much as Qualtrics was a family business, um, uh, to some point, the role that, that our partners and their spouses and Ashley um, and my family can have in doing this, it's truly a, a family effort. Like Ash and I just got back from the Hall of Fame this last weekend where, you know, Dwayne Wade, who, who's a partner of ours, and, and Holly Rowe um, both received um, major awards and Dwayne was inducted. Holly Rowe, who's um, obviously a famous broadcaster and sideline reporter, works for us, um, received an award. And it was something that we could do as a family, which is pretty cool. Coincidentally, I'm interviewing um, Ed Bastain in a few weeks on this podcast, the CEO of Delta Airlines. Ryan, finish with this thought. You talked about the product on the floor, which is obviously what my son Wentworth and Thatcher and Smith Miller watch with my wife Stephanie weekly when the Jazz are in town. What do you want viewers and listeners today to know what, that goes on behind the scenes at the Delta Center with the Jazz that you and your wife and the other people invested in leadership and the players themselves and the coaches and the support and everybody, the guys who mop the sweat up <laughs> amongst the, um, the net, what do you want people to know about what goes in to your passion around the product on the floor? Yeah, so coming from the business environment, it's, it's unique because we would always measure ourselves. You know, if you, you've got Ed from Delta, you've got myself, we measure ourselves in market share. You know, if you look at, you know, what percent of the market do you have? And, you know, the category leaders typically will have 30 or 40 percent of a market and they're the biggest brand in that market. Um, sports, there's no market share. It, it's really about one winner. And the rest are pretty unhappy at the end of the year. And so I think there's there's three or four things that that we try to work on when we think about the, the whole experience. Number one is. Obviously, we want a culture of being a championship organization, regardless of whether we're winning a championship or not. And that, to me, means we've got incredible um, people who are part of the organization, from the front office to the head coach, all the way down. Um, and we've got people who are, are giving their all for, for themselves and for the fan base uh, every single night. And I think that's what we saw last year with the Jazz, was just the ability of of our, our fan base really wants people who, who, who play hard. And I think we had the most close games of, of any team in the league last year coming down the stretch. There was just no give up. And, and I think we had, you know, we've got 251 straight sellouts here in Utah, which is, which is pretty, pretty incredible. Um, when it comes to the organization behind the scenes, um, you know, I'm smart enough to know that uh, it's really about a, a team. And, you know, what I've learned in, in 20 years, 22 years in tech is you just want to get people who are smarter than you and, and help provide a, a really transparent um, and safe environment where you can communicate and that, you know, no one person has to be right. You just need to do it together and be right together. And so if you look at our organization, um, you know, Danny Ainge is a CEO. Uh, of basketball and really responsible for the product on the floor is getting the right product in here with Justin Zanuck, our GM. And then, you know, we, we hired a new coach two years ago 
who's he's going into his second year. He's one of the youngest coaches in the league, or was at the time, Will Hardy, who has done a fantastic job. Um, and reality is just our ability to work together as an organization um, and, and create a bond and trust um, between us that will help be something that not only the fans can see, but the players can see. And that translates off the floor and, and on the floor. And so, um, look, there's 30 teams. They're all highly competitive. Everyone wants to be the one team that is smiling at the end. Um, and there's really not a lot of market share data out there that if you, if you don't win, that you're happy. And so it's a very different environment. Um, and we're, we're building something special. We feel it. I think the city feels it. Um, but at the end of the day, um, winning solves a lot of problems. It does, but I also think there's great value to what you said is you can have a championship team and still perhaps not win the championship that year. What a great goal for everybody. I want to end with this. Our time is up. Um, I think it's important to clarify. I misspoke earlier when I talked about your dad's passing. Of course, your dad has not passed. He's very much alive. He yeah. survived this bout of cancer. What's it like 20 years on for you and your dad I'm guessing you don't have that same garage you launched this whole dream in. When you and your dad kind of like pinch yourself at wingers or wherever you are on a Saturday evening yeah. together and you're talking about the journey, what's it like for you and your dad and those close around you to, to, uh, to retrospect on this journey and talk about the impact you're having now through all of the, the work with the foundations and the philanthropy and the Jazz and the Real Salt Lake and the Delta Center and Qualtrics and the things that are to come. What's it like with you and your dad when you talk about it? Yeah, so, so my dad and I, we've been in business with Qualtrics and you know, we do a little bit of real estate, but um, most of our stuff's really based on Qualtrics. Um, and I think one of the rules in business is you always hear is never work with family. And that's, I, I understand all the reasons why. Um, however, I think that if you fast forward and you said, hey, wait a minute, what if we did start something, we could hit our goals and we could actually do something amazing. And you just had a choice and said, who, if you could make it work, who would you want to do it with? And you get to that point and you're looking around and for me I have a brother who I recruited from Google in 2010 and my father and I think to be at that point where we actually have created something and we do do something epic that none of us thought we could do and then to be able to look to your side and see a brother and a father um, I don't think that there's anything I'd rather have in the world because that's, if you could draw it up, that's how you would do it. And I understand the risk that a lot of people face when they try to go with their family. You run the risk that you, you actually don't have those relationships at the end, mm -hmm. which are very real because business is hard. Mm -hmm. However, if you could make it work, the high is way higher. Ryan Smith beautifully said, you are the franchise owner and governor of the Utah Jazz, founder and executive chairman of Qualtrics, co-founder and chairman of the Smith Entertainment Group, and newfound friend to Wentworth Miller, who will be taking you up on your opportunity <laughs> for some pre-play right. at one of the Jazz Gays. Ryan, thank you for your time today. All right, I appreciate it, Scott.
And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.